We've been counting down to Pentecost. And uh, actually, we're already, can you believe it? We're five weeks into the seven weeks between Easter and Pentecost. We're already five weeks in. Pentecost is Sunday after next. So the, the account of the Omer that we talked about that the Jews are doing right now, I mean, we're well into that. And what is the significance of Pentecost? Well, once again, just like we were talking about with communion, it's not about celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's talking about something that is happening right now, if we allow, if we let it. Pentecost is the celebration of the breaking through of spirit into this world, the breaking through of spirit into our own spirits. It's a, the consciousness of the reality of our lives, which is so different than what we can just see, taste, smell, measure with our instruments. It is a breaking through of the unseen into the seen. It's how those two work together. It is the breakthrough of trust in the unseen reality of life. Not just the awareness of it, but now the trust, the ability to lean in, the ability to start to live life with less and less fear so that we can become more sure-footed, at least from the outside in, in terms of the steps we take and knowing that there will be solid ground under our steps as long as we are moving in the direction of spirit, which we can now begin to ascertain as it blows through. Even though, well, though we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to, the direction of the, of the wind, of the flow, becomes something that we can discern and we can flow with it. We call it being spirit-filled. We call it being born again. We throw all these terms at it to try to get across something that is profound, a profound change in our lives to become fully aware of and to become more and more trusting in being part of something that is larger than ourselves. Realizing that this self is not the be-all and end-all of our existence, that there is something much larger that we are part of, where that small self, where that egoic mind gives way and a new identity starts to take hold in us that is beyond that self. The original church fathers called communion and called this whole process anamnesis, which literally means unforgetting in Greek. And I love that. Unforgetting is more powerful than remembering in a certain way. You know, to unforget who we really are, to remember who we really are. But to unforget, I don't know, it just has a different feel to it. It, it puts a different emphasis, and I think that's an important emphasis. To unforget who we really are in God to unforget who we really are in spirit and how all of that works together. We were reading, as uh, Frank so lovingly said, reading the, the book that we've been reading for about eight, nine months now, whatever it's been. Uh, there was a quote from it uh, last Wednesday that we kind of stopped on and ended up talking about for a while. And it's where the author said that to come to this stage of development, to come to this stage in our, in our spiritual and even psychological maturity, is brought on by a highly conscious waiting, a highly conscious waiting, that we must wait for that which is greater than self, because you can't control it. You have to wait. It's kind of like that farmer that we've been talking about off and on for the last few weeks. That parable of the growing seed that we keep coming back to. In fact, let's, let's read it again really quickly so we can remember. At Mark 4, verse 26. 
Jesus was saying, the kingdom of heaven, so right off the bat, this parable is, he's trying to come up with words, just like I was saying at the beginning of this. I hope I can come up with words that can convey what I am coming to understand and becoming convinced of. Jesus is time after time after time at bat, trying to come up with words that can convey what he has understood and experienced about kingdom. Kingdom is everything to Jesus. It is that here now quality of life, and he's trying to get across to anyone who will listen in as many different ways as he can to try to get as many light bulbs on over heads as he possibly can what this kingdom is like because it's so different than what we normally experience. It's so different than the way that we go about acquiring things in our lives that we need. And so he keeps trying. And so he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I love this. What is he really saying here? He's saying that the real miracle the gift that we cannot under any circumstances give to ourselves arrives while we're sleeping. It comes while we're waiting. It doesn't come through any effort of our own. It's not under our control. But at the same time, notice something really important. The waiting is not passive. The waiting is intensely active. The waiting is highly conscious. What does the farmer have to do? Look at all the preparation that the farmer goes through. The farmer has to prepare the soil. And in that country, it's rocky soil. So try and find patches of soil that can work and planting the seed, scattering the seed, nurturing the seed, weeding, doing everything that needs to happen so that when the rains come, that he has no control over. Everything is prepared and everything is ready. Then he can go to sleep. And then he has to get up the next day and continue to nurture and continue to watch and continue to work. There is a day-by-day diligence, a day-by-day discipline punctuated by times of waiting and knowing how that rhythm works. It is so different than the way that we typically go about things where we're constantly planning, worrying, you know, trying to grunt something out by sheer force of will. It's just showing up to the daily do and then going to bed at night. And then at the appropriate time, you put in the sickle and you take in the harvest. This is the way that it works. It's the reaping of the harvest afterward. All of that preparation, all of that work is telling us that we have to prepare seed and soil. We have to then present seed and soil to the rains or nothing happens. And then that crop will rot in the fields if we don't harvest it. There are still things to be done, but we have to understand where our limits are. We have to understand what we can do and what we can't do. And the fact that this is a gift that we can't give ourselves, that we have no control over, that's where the gratitude comes from. It's not about entitlement. It's about the gift that just comes down from above. This is the quality of kingdom that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Very different than the way we typically live life, even in the ancient world, not to mention our own. 
So Pentecost, this feast that is coming up in two weeks, this celebration, is a celebration of the ripening of the crop. It's a celebration of the ripening of the spiritual breakthrough that we can't control. We can't make it happen. But we must prepare. We prepare our own soil. We prepare our own seed. Or nothing does happen. And so the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we prepare? Well, look at it this way. What kills our ability to be fully aware of and to fully trust in the action of unseen spirit? What is the killer of that? Well, it's fear, of course. It's always fear. Fear is the single source of all dysfunction, and everything that we recognize as evil in our lives and in the world, just ask yourself what you're afraid of, what they're afraid of, and like a laser, it's going to take you to the source of that dysfunction, that breakdown. To prepare for Pentecost is to become first aware of our fears. So many times when I talk to people, they say, well, I'm not afraid of anything. And, you know, it's not going to be felt as fear as you think of as terror or afraidness, but it is going to manifest in your life with stress, with worry, with all of those dysfunctional relationships, all of those uncomfortable things in your life, the offenses that keep hitting you time after time, the resistances to doing things that you think you probably should do and know you should do. That's fear talking. That's the source of all of this the envy and the jealousy and all the other seven deadly sins all come as a source of fear. So to prepare for Pentecost is first to become aware of those fears and to find their source, to actually do the interior work that it takes to say, where is this coming from? Why are these things still bedeviling me? Why are these things still driving compulsively, obsessively my thought patterns, my behavior patterns? And then to expose the truth. Let the truth bubble up. See what's going on. That's what we've been trying to do for the last few weeks here. We've been trying to look at obvious fears that we have. As a, as a group, and we have our individual fears, but as a group, there are fears that oh, are just endemic to the human condition, right? And that's what we've been looking at. Last fear, last week, last fear, last week, we looked at the fear of death. Of course we fear death. Why do we fear death? We talked about the fact that it's a question of identity. That's why we fear death. This gift that God has given us, right? This self-awareness, this conscious mind, what sometimes we call the egoic mind, we call the small self, it's what separates us from the animals. It separates us from small children who have not yet hit the age of reason. This is what allows us to be able to create, to imagine, to think abstractly, to think unconstrainably, to understand time as past and future and present, to be aware of things that have gone on and are going to be coming so that we can think strategically. All of that is possible because of our conscious minds. It allows us to do all those things. But at the same time, it also allows us to see ourselves as separate from, in competition with everyone else. It allows us to see ourselves as a part. It allows us to see ourselves as above and outside. Nature itself, community, relationship, everyone and everything else. And it's the fear of that isolation. 
It's the fear of that competition for survival that creates the need for us to build and defend and offend and protect and conquer, project ourselves as certain things, whether we are or whether we aren't. All of that behavior that, of course, you see in your own life, that you see in the people around you, your coworkers, your bosses, you see in politicians and world leaders, you see in nations, all of that driven by that same fear, that fear of isolation, that fear of competition, that fear that this life is a zero-sum game and if I don't get mine, then no one else is going to get it for me and i got to take it out of the hide of someone else. All of that behavior is that fear. And if we over-identify with that small mind, with ourselves as an individual, as a tribe, as a nation, as a religion, as a belief system, then everything that we're going to be doing is to ensure the survival of those smaller entities at the expense of someone else and everything else. Over-identification with us as an individual, each one of us, creates an I against you and us against them. And once you care less about someone else than you do about yourself, then every evil is possible. The instant that happens, that I, my tribe, is more important, more human than you or your tribe, then we're off to the races and everything takes off from there. The only way that we can break down that fear because the fear of death threatens that I, doesn't it? We talked about last week, the basic fear of death is the question, do we continue as ourselves after death? The way we know ourselves, the way we are known as ourselves, does that continue? Or does somehow our consciousness return to the ocean like a drop and get subsumed into the collective consciousness? That's the thing we really want to know. But the only way then to break down the fear that we have of protecting that I is contemplative. That's why contemplative practice is so critically important to step away from that I over and over again as the same kind of discipline that the farmer brings to the field and to the seed and to everything that he does to nurture that crop, that harvest, to show up day after day and re-identify away from the small self into a larger self, something that is more inclusive, something that is greater than ourselves. That's what contemplation is all about, re-identification with the eternal I, not the I that stops at the headstone. Very different. And so if we fear death, what else do we fear? Well, right on the heels of that is God's judgment, isn't it? Wondering what God really thinks of us, and, of course, we've been taught that God is a legal God who is going to be weighing the scales at the moment of death. And so we're worried that we're not going to measure up, that we're not going to be good enough, no matter how hard we try. If we look at God that way, we're going to be worried about hell. And that's another thing that we fear. Why do we fear the judgment of God? Why do we fear hell? Because we've been taught to look at God legally. We've been taught to look at hell literally. And so... How do we look at God and at hell and these things that we fear in a way that is more in line with Jesus' teaching? Because I'll tell you right now, Scripture doesn't teach that. 
Scripture doesn't teach that God is a legal God. Everything Jesus says, everything that Jesus does is set up to absolutely refute that idea. All of his fights with the Pharisees are right over the point of legalism. It's not that he's saying. Your God is a relational God. Your God is a God of mercy and compassion. Your God deliberately unbalances the scales of justice all in the favor of the beloved every time, every moment. That's what grace is all about. God God is love. It changes everything. And yet we have this tradition that continues to take us over to the other side and stoke our fears. Scripture doesn't teach us that. And Scripture doesn't teach hell in the way that we have understood hell. And this is sometimes a revelation for us. It certainly was for me. In Jewish thinking, and Jews wrote our scriptures, there is no concept of an eternal torment. It's just not there. In the Bible, there are five words that have typically been translated as hell. Three of them in Hebrew Aramaic and two of them in Greek. The first one, Sheol, is one that appears in the in the first five books, the earliest books. But Sheol doesn't mean anything really more than the grave or the pit. It does connect with the Greek word Hades, which does appear in the New Testament. But they're a place where everybody goes, both the righteous and the wicked alike. It's just the abode of the dead. It is undifferentiated. It has a shadowy sort of a feel to it. But remember, the Jews don't focus on the afterlife. They don't pretend to know anything about the afterlife. And so their scriptures and their doctrine doesn't reflect any knowing. Obviously, they have words to talk about the olam haba, the world to come but they don't really speculate on it. Sheol makes no differentiation. Last week, we talked about the Sadducees, who only accepted the first five books, the Torah of the Bible. And Sheol is in those first five books, but they did not believe that there was an afterlife, that there was a resurrection, that the soul continued on in any way after death, even as a Jewish sect. And so, obviously, Sheol didn't convey that thought to them. On the other hand, the Pharisees, who did believe in all those things, the resurrection of the dead and, and the continuation of the soul, realized that Sheol didn't preclude them having those beliefs. Sheol just sort of stood out there as this undifferentiated, unknowable kind of thing. And Hades is the same way. Another word that is used is the outer darkness. Matthew uses that once. In an ancient cosmology, the sky was understood by the Hebrews to be a hard metal dome. They called it the rachia. And the stars and the lights of the, of the firmament were pounded into this dome. And the dome rested on tall mountains on the edges of a flat earth. And so it kind of sat on top of it. And everything inside those mountains, everything under the dome, under the rachia, was life and light and warmth and community. And anything outside those mountains was outer darkness outside of community and life and light. But it really had no other distinction besides that. Jesus talking about being in the outer darkness, outside the closed gates of the wedding feast, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because we're outside of community. But it's not hell the way we think of hell. The closest to the hell that we can think of is Gehenna, which is an Aramaic word that came from the, the valley of Hinnom, 
which in Isaiah's time was a place of, of uh, the Canaanite god worship, Molech, and there was child sacrifice and all sorts of horrible things that went on there. When the Jews occupied the land, they turned it into their garbage dump. So by Jesus' time, it was just a permanent garbage dump. Fires were always burning there to burn off the organic waste, whatever it happened to be. So it was smoky, it was putrid, it was horrible, it was the, the most disgusting and unclean place a Jew could imagine was this garbage dump. And so it was used to understand that the fires that burned there burned for purification. Ancient people didn't know why if you let things rot in your presence you get sick. They just knew that fire and salt could take it away. And so fire and salt was used as a purifying agent. And so it became a place that they understood to say, when people who are not righteous in this life die, what happens to them? Well, they go to Gehenna. But the important thing to understand is that the fires there didn't burn as punishment. The fires burned there as purification because the stay in Gehenna was not permanent. Gehenna was much more like Catholic purgatory than our concept of hell. In fact, colloquially, they understood the maximum stay in Gehenna was 12 months. And of course, that was symbolic of a complete cycle. But in the Kaddish, the, the, the prayer for the dead, you said the longest every day for your parents, but you said it for a maximum of 11 months. Because to say it for the full 12 meant that they were as bad as they could possibly be, and you didn't want to say that about your mom and your dad. It's just interesting that Gehenna was a temporary place of purification so that person could move on. These are the words that have been translated as hell, but the word hell is actually a Teutonic word. It comes from the Germanic tribes from what is now Denmark in northern Germany. And it was connected to their goddess of the underworld, Hell, H-E-L, kind of like what Pluto was in Hades. But we really don't have the concept of hell that we have now in our modern Western culture, really until the 14th century. How many have heard of Dante? Dante's Inferno. Yeah, Alighieri, good Italian name, right? He wrote the Divine Comedy. It was a, it was a epic poem in three parts, and the first one was the Inferno, and it's the story of a soul that rises from the infernal places up to Paradiso, up to paradise. But his concept of hell is really our concept of hell. It's where we got all of the imagery of the fire and the brimstone, of the torment, of the demons, all of that. There are nine circles of hell that go down to the deepest place where Satan resides, that's really where we get our idea of hell. That doesn't come from our scriptures. There is nothing in our scriptures that describes that. Now, I know that you've got a lot of verses running through your noodles right now, and you're thinking, well, what about this, and what about that? You know, and we could talk about them. Not here. We don't have time to develop it. But we could talk about them, and some of the arguments would be more satisfying than others. But ultimately, all of them are just going to be rational arguments. And that's not going to take us where we really need to go. If where we're trying to go is to trust in unseen spirit, then a rational argument is not the vehicle that'll take us there. It can get us started, though. And if I've done nothing but maybe just crack a little space in the wall of your understanding of hell to say there could be another way for us to look at and to understand hell, then that's enough for right now. You know? How can we move forward? And let me be clear here. Am I saying that there is no hell? No, I'm not saying that at all. Please understand. 
both for the record and for everyone here. I'm not saying there is no hell. That has ramifications that run through the cross and all sorts of things, and we're not going there. We're not talking about universal reconciliation or anything like that. But what we are talking about is that if our God is not a legal God who isn't just interested in balancing the scales of justice at a snapshot of our life at the moment of death, then hell is not going to be what we think it is because God is not who we thought he was, as Jesus is trying to get us to understand. If you think about it, hell isn't so much a thing as it is the absence of a thing. It's kind of like cold. You know, cold really doesn't exist. Cold is the absence of heat. Dark doesn't really exist. It's the absence of light. Hell is the absence of what? Oh, heaven, of course. If you don't have the qualities of heaven, if you don't have the qualities of kingdom, what you are left with, as in cold and dark, is what we call hell. In a very real way, we talked about this last week, we can't understand death until we fully understand life. To be fully engaged, to be fully involved in life, will finally allow us to stop fearing death if we're really fully engaged in this life. And in the same way, we can't understand hell until we fully understand heaven. And to be fully engaged, fully involved in heaven is to stop fearing hell, to stop fearing that judgment. Why? Because for a Hebrew, heaven itself, Shemaiah, was just another word for God. It was a euphemism for God because they wouldn't say God's name, and so they'd say Shemaiah instead of God's name. The unity that was represented in Shemaiah, the oneness of the sky, the oneness of the abode of God, is who God was, who God is. God is that oneness to a Jew. To know heaven is to know God, and to know God is to know that there's nothing to fear in God, nothing to fear in God's spirit. Jesus points us in the right direction. He's always pointing us in the right direction. But take a look at John chapter 17. This is the chapter-long prayer that Jesus utters as he's leaving the upper room for the garden on that last night with his friends. And Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said at verse 20, Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's talking about his friends that are with him. But for those also who believe in me through their word, all of us, right? By extension. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. It's hard to find a more direct statement of the reality of the fabric of this universe of our relationship with God than what Jesus is saying right there. And there's one word that always gave me pause and I never really understood, and that's glory. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. What's meant by glory? 
You know, we always think of being a glory hog. We think of glorification. You know, we think of the glory of battle or the glory of some victory. Is that really what God is talking about here? Is that really what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about glory? The Greek word is doxa, where we get doxology from. The Aramaic word is subha. But what it really means, in essence, is a good opinion. If you have a good opinion about someone or something, you have doxa. You have subha. If you have approval for something or praise for something, that's doxa. That's glory. That's what he's talking about here. Remember when Jesus was in the River Jordan and the voices heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the kind of glory we're talking about here. He says his father is well pleased with him. It's an expression of God's pleasure. It's an expression of God's delight. Jesus' glory here that he's talking about is a reflection of God's pleasure, of God's delight, of God's deepest purpose. And we have said over and over, that is the definition of the word subkana, which means his will. His will is his pleasure and his desire and his deepest purpose. And Jesus is reflecting that. He's reflecting God's will. He's reflecting the oneness that he has with his Father. That's his glory. That's his doxa. That's his subha. And then he gives that to his followers. And the followers' glory is the reflection of Jesus' will, pleasure, purpose, which is the reflection of God's pleasure, will, purpose. And everything becomes one. He finishes off by saying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. I love that statement. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. It's a statement of nowness. It's a statement of hereness. It's all happening right here, right now, because there's no place else for it to happen. The oneness of this pleasure, this purpose, this will, is always now. Always now. It can't be anywhere else. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, my reflection of you, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these, these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Unity, connection. To know God is to know heaven. To know heaven is to know God. To know God is to know the truth that makes us free from the fear that creates a separation. The Irish poet John O'Donohue captures, I think, this idea of this oneness and this nowness pretty well. Take a little read here. He calls it the circle of eternity. The Celtic-Irish tradition recognizes that the eternal and transient worlds are woven in and through each other. Here on earth, we are caught in linear time. But the Celtic mind never liked the line. <laughs> Always loved the shape of the circle. I imagine that in the eternal world, time has become the circle of eternity. Maybe when a person goes into that world, he or she can look back at what we call past time here, that that person may also see all of future time, 
present time is total presence. One of the exciting developments that may happen in evolution and in human consciousness in the next several hundred years is a whole new relationship with the invisible eternal world. We might begin to link up in a very creative way with the invisible world, a place where there is no more shadow, darkness, loneliness, isolation, or pain, home with God from whom we came, return to the nest of our identity within the great circle of God. God is the greatest circle of all the largest embrace in the universe, which holds visible and invisible, temporal and eternal as one. In the eternal world, all is one. In spiritual space, there is no distance. In eternal time, there is no segmentation into today and yesterday or tomorrow. In eternal time, all is now. Time is presence. I believe that this is what eternal life means. It is a life where all that we seek, goodness, unity, beauty, truth, love, are no longer distant from us, but are now completely present with us. And Richard Rohr says it less poetically, but maybe more directly. He writes, saints see things in their connectedness and wholeness They don't see things as separate. It's all one. And yet, like the Trinity, also different. There's the Trinity again. There's a great use of Trinity, the concept of Trinity. All one, but still different. Isn't that the paradox of human life and existence? How are we all one, and yet we see such distinction of form and purpose and action? How do we relate that back together again? The Trinity is a model for us to see that. What you do to another, you do to yourself. How you love yourself is how you love your neighbor. How you love God is how you love yourself. How you love yourself is how you love God. How you do anything is how you do everything. I've often raised eyebrows by saying, you know what? In a very real way, we don't love God directly. How can we, unseen God? We love God by loving each other. That's what Jesus tells us. That's what John tells us. But it takes a mental leap to get there, doesn't it? Faith is not simply seeing things at their visible surface level, but recognizing their deepest meaning. To be a person of faith means we see things, people, animals, plants, the earth, as inherently connected to God, connected to ourselves, and therefore absolutely worthy of love and dignity. That's what Jesus is praying for, that we could see things in their unity, in their connectedness. I will go so far to say that the more we can connect, the more of a saint we are. The less we can connect, the less transformed we are. If we can't connect with people of other religions, classes, or races, with our enemies, or with those who are suffering, we're not very converted. Truly transformed individuals are capable of a universal recognition. They see things and everything as one. Either we learn to live in communion with other people and with all that God has created, or quite simply, we're not ready for heaven. And no one lives in heaven alone. 
If we want to live an isolated life, trying to prove that we're better than everyone else or believing we're worse than everyone else, we are already in hell. We have been invited, even now, even today, even this moment, to live consciously in the presence, in the body, in the life of the eternal and eternally risen Christ. This must, must be an almost perfect way, he says, to describe salvation itself. It's all now. Heaven, hell only exist now. And the only moment that exists at all, this moment is the only moment that exists. That's true in this life, and it's going to be true in the next life. Just one moment. Circles of eternity. One moment. Eternally. That's what it's all about. To see this oneness that we're talking about here is to see God. To see this oneness is to experience heaven and to know the truth that sets us free from this fear of death or hell or judgment. To see that God, to see that heaven is pure connection, pure oneness. Our minds are what create the illusion of separation. It's our minds that create hell for ourselves with the illusion of separation. It's not God creating hell for us. It's not God relegating us to hell. It's our minds creating that state and keeping us in it. And to say that it's an illusion, okay, perhaps that's true, but it's still experienced as real agony as long as we identify primarily with our own minds and not with each other. That makes all the difference. And think about it. We imagine hell as being horrendous, as being a horror, as being ugly. There's Dante's Inferno. Thank you, Dante. Right? But is it really? This world is a beautiful place. It's an amazing place. It's an absolutely mind-blowing place, right? But life here is hell if we only see the disconnection, the separation, the competition, and the needs of our own personal survival or that of our tribe, our family, our nation. Why do we assume that the next life will be any different? If we can turn this beautiful world into hell, then we can carry that hell with us right into heaven. It's our choice. It's our blindness. There's a wonderful Hebrew folktale that says in the Olam Haba, in the world to come, nobody's arms bend at the elbows. They're all straight. So if you're in hell, you're starving to death because you can't feed yourself, because you can't bend your arms. But if you're in heaven, you have learned to feed each other. Not a place, a state of being, a state of being understood from the inside out, a state of being that has been learned by the ability to identify with other, with everything else, with everything that is greater than ourselves or only inside our own bubble, creates that. And we look at this world, we look at the problems that we have created out of our own fear. 
And we want to save the world. We want to preserve the world. We want to fix the world from everything that we have visited on it because of our fears. But then we use the same individual egoic minds, right? The tools of duality, the tools of ego, to try to fix what they created in their fear. Remember we've said here over and over again that the means we use must match the ends we seek. Last week we talked about Einstein who said you can't fix a problem with the same thinking that created the problem. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. The very individual egoic mind that created everything that we see as evil and dysfunctional and wrong in this world that is essentially a beautiful place. We're trying to use those same minds to fix. And all we can do is create more dysfunction, create more problems. Jesus told us you're not going to get grapes from thorn bushes. You're not going to get figs from thistles. We need to completely change our approach to what is going on if we really want to make a difference. I mean, look around. We're trying to fix injustice. We're trying to fix inequality inequality. But we're really only creating more distance between each other, aren't we? More animosity. All the great divides that we see in our culture around us between black and white and male and female and Hispanic and Asian Pacific and and left and right and gay and straight. Divisions between nations, divisions between religions. Is it really getting any better? If we keep using the mindset of division to try to heal division, the mindset of individuality, of this group against that, it can't possibly. We're not going to get grapes from thorn bushes. Jesus told us that straight out. But get out of the macro and look a little bit closer. Look in your own family, between husband and wife, between parents and children, between siblings. What is the source of the conflicts there? What is going on? It's always the same. It's the needs of the individual. It's the over-identification with self that creates all the defending and offending and all of that dysfunctional behavior. To begin to see the other as connected with you. To begin to see the other as literally an extension of self. When I can start to see my needs fulfilled only as your needs are fulfilled, that my happiness can only be found in your happiness, that's a sea change. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that goes, to suffer yourself when all under heaven suffer, to enjoy only when all under heaven enjoy, is the perfect statement of what we're talking about here. What happens at Pentecost is a breaking down of the walls of self, an expansion that happens that includes larger and larger swaths of everything that we can comprehend, everything that we can see. That's what we're talking about. An identification with all of that rather than just this local place right here and right now. It changes everything. It turns hell literally into heaven. And this is how we can see ourselves as continuing as ourselves, as we know ourselves and as we are known, when we are conscious of self only as a necessary tool and a choice to be able to love another self. In that, 
Trinity-like relationship between lover and beloved is how we can continue as ourselves beyond death into another life that we can't even imagine. We always imagine that heaven is a place of ideal circumstances, right? That's how we define heaven. The circumstances are ideal. But what if it's not? What if it's not about the circumstances? What if heaven is the learned ability to see our circumstances as ideal, whatever they are? What if we discover that heaven is portable? We don't go there. We carry it with us wherever we go. That is a complete change. Whenever we're ready, Jesus says, it's already within us the ability to have a portable heaven and carry it wherever we go, even into the gates of hell. Let's pray. Father, that's a lot of words spoken, a lot of seeds scattered. For each one of us in this room this morning, Father, and each one of us in rooms on the other side of the camera, we pray that there is one thing that we heard that we can take with us that can be the beginning, can be a seed for change. A lot of these concepts are so difficult for us, and they push so many buttons for us. Help us to move past that. Help us to have an open mind. Not that we will accept everything just because, but that we will consider everything and see where we land, what we become convinced of, and be honest with ourselves whether what we believe is taking us to more and more of a fearless place, more and more into fearless vulnerability with you, able to be open, undefended, connected, and if not, to go back to the source and find out where we took the wrong turn. That's the important thing. That's what you keep telling us. That's what we want in life, Father, is to be able to find that place with you and each other, our heaven, not after we die, but right here, right now, extending into after we die. That's what we're looking for, Father. You promised it to us if we show up and we follow, and that's what we want to do. Thank you for your love and constancy, Lord. Never let us forget we can only do this because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.